Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Uh, hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the artistic director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. And we have quite a theatrical person uh, here today, Dave Wybrow, who is the artistic director of The Cockpit in London, uh, who, which will be hosting our production, co-producing our production of Tally's Folly by Lanford Wilson in October. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jerry. It's lovely to be here. Can you, uh, can you start off, Dave, just by telling uh, me and everybody who might be listening, what, what is the cockpit? Um, how big is its operation? How, how many staff do you have? And that sort of thing. Okay, so it's in central London. It's a purpose-built theatre in the round. It seats 240 people. It was built in 1972, so it's actually open 50 years this year. It's a brutalist 60s functionalist standalone building with seats on all four sides and some studios upstairs and a nice bar. And um, that's about it. It's tucked away in a little side street just off Lisson Grove, which is near Marylebone, which is near things like Baker Street and the Sherlock Holmes Museum and Regent's Park and um, Madame Tussauds and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but we're by far the most interesting little, uh, <laughs> little box on the street. Absolutely. Uh, Dave, uh, what's the community like uh, around the cockpit? Uh, it seemed to me a very diverse community when I was there in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's the, um, the thing that I always say is that it's a community of communities. There is every uh, possible language. I can't think of a language I haven't heard on Church Street, which is the local street just outside. It's very, very diverse. It's on the fringes of the West End. It's a traditional stopping off place. Harrow Road, which comes down just near the cockpit, was where, for one thing, Tyburn Tree was, and there were it was the it was the bit just outside centre of London that was I, full of itinerants and people travelling and people travelling to work in Kent from Ireland used to stop in this area, and the whole area has got a a transitory, temporary, shifting population that in some ways settles and in some ways never does. There's a continual churn of nationalities. You can always tell where the latest war is by the nationality of the chef in the kebab shop down the road. And things change from, from time to time. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily vibrant area um, and, very, and very diverse. So we, um, we, we do work in English, but we also do quite a lot of work in other languages. Um, and we a bit in Arabic and some in French and some in uh, other Middle Eastern uh, languages, Farsi sometimes. There's a big Iranian population around here. Mm -hmm. So we do a bit of that. Uh, most of the time, though, we're serving a population that travels across London to come to this particular venue because we do stuff in the round and we, we, we favour work of ideas and disruptive panache, as we always say. So if something that's, that's got something interesting to say, an interesting way to say it, that's really our calling card. And uh, that attracts various 
diverse audiences in addition to the diverse audiences that live around here. How long have you been at the cockpit? About 300 years, Jerry. I, I think I came in, uh, I can't remember the year I came in, but it was 90-something. And I think I've been here about 27 or 28 years now. Well, and you came in as the artistic director, is that correct? Well, the it was it was the, the place was built by a very enlightened um, socialist uh, democratic um, education authority that used to run education in London, mm-hmm. and they built it. And then Margaret Thatcher, you might remember her, she didn't like this socialist <laughs> educational authority, and she disbanded it. And so the the Socialist Education Authority, which used to run all the education in London, in desperation gave the theatre. They'd built it. They'd built it specifically to uh, enfranchise young people. The area this this is built in was, at that time, had the highest crime rate in the country. And they built, and being socialist, they thought, well, what do you do with lots of young people that are are getting up to no good? Well, you give them art. And so they they built a theatre for them. And it kind of worked. So for for years, the place did a lot of work with local young kids. Mm -hmm. When Ilya went, when the the socialist educators were thrown out, they gave the theatre to a local college. And that college never knew what to do with it until one day it decided to give it to me. And I've been there ever since, Um, which was quite good for it and really good for me, I have to tell you. Can you tell me a little bit about about yourself, Dave? Uh, but um, you you had been involved in theatre uh, much longer than that, I presume. And how did that come about? Uh, where are you from originally? Um, I'm, and, a, yeah. I'm a Londoner. Uh, I did. I didn't start off in theatre. I started off in journalism and all sorts of other things. Like a lot of us during the seventies, sixties, seventies, eighties, I was travelling a lot. I didn't really get involved in theatre till I was about 30. Mm. But then I did, and I discovered it was my medium. And I've been involved with it ever since. It's not the only thing that I've done. I haven't, been, I haven't just been here sitting here twiddling away for 26 years. I've done some other stuff as well. I've got another strand, which is human rights. And I've worked for various times with refugees uh, most of my life. And somehow this arts and human rights thing kind of goes together. And that's probably accounts for the artistic policy of the cockpit. I might, I might say, I don't, I, when I say the college gave it to me, they didn't give it to me. They just invited me to come and run it. And uh, right. I've been right. ever since. And, and uh, the college is, uh, which, which, what is the name of the college? It's called United Colleges Group now. They're, uh, they're, a, they're a further education college. So, uh, again, it's a vocational college rather than a university. Although, in fact, the theatre as it is now works with a whole lot of different universities alongside professional companies. And it's mostly professional companies, but we do work a lot with, with, with college groups and universities as well. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what did your parents do? Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. My father was training to be, he died when I was six, and he was yeah. training to be a dentist at that time. Bear in mind, both my parents went through the Second World War, as, as yours probably did, but they were in London. So my, my father was in the Blitz during the war on a stretcher party. 
my mother was in a reserved occupation because she used to work for a dairy, Express Dairy, and she was a she was an accountant for that dairy's firm. They were they were Londoners. They were they 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 liked the arts. They I've got all their books downstairs. They used to give each other poetry books. I used to read to each other. I used to read poetry to each other. Mm-hmm. They used to. There's I've got the entire works of Tennyson that he gave her one Christmas downstairs. It's uh, they were average. Londoners, really, with a little bit of a shine for literature and poetry. Uh, yeah, 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 they're both dead now. That's uh, that's very similar to my upbringing. My my parents had very uh, few books uh, that they owned, but they were constantly going to the library. And and uh, when I was about six or seven, my father uh, paid me um, and my twin brother um, twenty dollars. To um, to memorize if uh, by Kipling, <laughs> which we promptly did, and I can still recite large parts of it. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. And the community that you grew up in was it a was it a, a? It doesn't sound like you grew up in a particularly affluent area. Uh, was it a? Would you call it middle class or lower middle class? Or <laughs> um, tricky. They were. My mother came from quite a middle-class background. Mm-hmm. My father did also. They came from Suffolk, and they were kind of, they were a bit fallen gentry, really. But my mother's family were, um, my great-grandfather was an inventor. They were all a bit weird, but they, my, famously, my, my grandfather was an inventor, uh, and made a lot of money, but he was also a gambler, and he lost it all. They had houses in Suffolk, and they lost all that. He lost the family. My fortune was lost by my grandpa mm. on new market races. My father, his lot were, 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 I don't know what they were, to be honest, because he died when I was six, so I was never able to investigate it very thoroughly. Mm. But they came to London, and it, we grew. I grew up in to begin with, rented accommodation in Harrow. They, they rented a, and then they got it together and they managed to get a house in Wealdstone, which was a little Victorian, two up, two down, working class, working class, definitely that, definitely a working class area. Um, and they were always a little bit, uh, they were probably a little bit more classy than the areas that we lived in, um, if, if, if by inclination and aspiration. They were, not, they were decent working class people, really. Did you uh, uh, did you have uh, siblings, uh, Dave? No, no, I don't have any siblings. I don't have anybody. No. There's a there's a Graham Wybrow who works in uh, the theatre in England, whose name pops up from time to time. I think he spells it slightly differently than yours, but I had always wondered if maybe there was a connection there. I don't know that if he spells it with an H, probably not. There's one family of Wybrows, and there is there was a, someone teaching English at, Ox, at Oxford for a while. And there's another mob of them down in the West Country, mm. uh, but I don't, I don't actually know, I don't know any other Wybrows. Weirdly, um, I'm a little, I'm a bit, a bit, um, I'm a bit short of family. I mean, if anybody wants to be my closest family, they're welcome to apply. I don't okay. have any, I don't have any brothers or sisters. Actually, Jerry, I was thinking of you. Would you like to come on board as part of my family? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Do I, uh, do I, I have don't to have. 
Do I have to grow the handlebar mustache? Is it would it be my no, question? Not at all. No, no, in fact, I wouldn't allow it, but you have to, you have to stick with <laughs> One's enough. <laughs> okay. Dave, um, um, do you so you said you were about 30 when you started working in theater. Was that the first time that you had 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 an experience in theater that that was meaningful to you? Or, you know, a lot of people talk about their first production of whatever Cinderella or whatever that caused them to see a, a place for themselves in the world. Is that how it happened with you or or was it um, something else that that brought you aboard? I kind of always liked theater. I was a theatrical kid. I used to put on little shows in the back garden and invite the local kids around to see it and charge them six, but, you know, I was that sort of kid. Uh, I was a bit of a showman as a kid. And then uh, one of the things I did before I got involved in theatre, and as I say, I was a bit of a journalist, I did all sorts of things, actually, but one of the things, I was a roadie, or a sort of rock and roll roadie, and I worked with Pink Floyd, and I, I kind of got to, like, working on big events. And I remember I worked on the wall, when the wall, when, when we were touring the wall, Pink Floyd were touring the wall. And I kind of like that, where you put a lot of effort in and then it happens, then it all goes away, aspect of theatre. You know, you can shut, you can break yourself doing a piece of theatre and there's nothing there's nothing to show afterwards except the sound of the applause ringing in your ears, you know, and I kind of like that. And then what happened was, I, I guess while I was, I moved from out the suburb, the working class suburb where I grew up, to Islington in central London. And it was at the time when pub theatre was taking off. Right. And there was a Canadian called Dan Crawford who started the King's Head in Islington, which was the first pub theatre. It was the first of many. I mean, this was the start of a wave of fringe theatre. And I was kind of got it. I was there at the start of that. And the first show I think I saw that I thought, wow, was a show called Mr. Joyce's Leaving Paris. And it was at the King's Head. It's a little show. I can't even remember who it's by, but it's a great little show. It's about James Joyce, mm -hmm. about him leaving Paris. And they staged it beautifully. And it was acted beautifully. And it was absolutely transported me. And I thought, this is amazing. And I kind of kept that thing for theatre all the way through. And then alongside that, I was very interested in documentary film because I'd, I'd started working as a journalist. I was a trainee news reporter on Fleet Street, in fact for an agency on Fleet Street. And so I thought, well, this is good, this this news reporting, but I'd really like to be making documentaries. And eventually I found, when I was 30, I was out in Australia, that um, Thatcher, that notorious woman, started cutting the grants because she got grants to go to college when I was a kid. So she started cutting the grants. And I thought, I'd better go back and do something serious with my education. So I went back to England and I found one course that combined film and theatre. And I thought, I can do my documentary. And also, this theatre stuff is fun. I'll do some of that too. But then when I got on it, in fact, I realised that film is quite an isolating medium in a way. You did, that I really like the convivial, everybody's got a view of the mountain thing that you get with a group of people putting together a piece of theatre. The idea that you can see it taking shape and everybody's working on it, you can see it in the room. The trouble with film is it's in the, it's in the mind of the director and the editor. Mm -hmm. and everybody else is standing around just doing their little bit and that as a, as a process didn't float my boat what floated my boat was this this group creative effort 
and the occasional moments of magic that become possible when it go, when it goes right it's just it's just absolutely transporting and magical and I, and I just love that so that's what happened but it was it was mr joyce's leaving paris at the king's head working with pink floyd on the wall and rocking up at this amazing college that happened to teach that do, did a joint degree in film and drama and i did both and did very well there and i've been doing it ever since in fact i've been doing it both ever since and human rights as well so I went on then and did the MA in human rights at Sussex, but that was not until I was about 14 something. Roger Waters was on his tour uh, here in Raleigh two weeks ago. Um, I had just come back from the West Coast that same day and I couldn't because uh, I had come down with COVID, so I couldn't go to see it. But uh, And I may have missed my opportunity because he's in his well into his 70s now, but that's one I would love to have seen. How, how old were you when you saw... Um, Mr. Uh, sorry, the play again is. Uh, Mr. Joyce is leaving Paris. I think I was. I think I was about eighteen. Mm-hmm. I think. I think I was about eighteen. It was at the King's Head because I know I was working at the King's Head behind the bar, the King's Head Theatre Pub in Islington. Yeah. And I wasn't old enough to be working there. It was illegal because I had my eighteenth. You're not allowed to work at the pub. Well, you are actually, but you're not allowed to drink until you're eighteen. But I, and I know that I saw it. I had my birthday in the pub. And they said, you're not 18 then. I said, no. I said, mm. But I know that, so I think I was 18 and I saw Mr. Joyce's Lee Paris. I wish I could remember the author. How many um, how many uh, birthdays since then have you had in pubs, Dave? <laughs> in what? In pubs? <laughs> I can't remember that. I wouldn't tell you it. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I was, uh, I, I, I ask about that because I, I find that so many uh, theater people are able to, to, to pinpoint the moment, you know, when, when something became possible for them uh, uh, in, in their life, and, um, and I, yeah. I, just, I, I, I guess I want to ask the question. You, you do a lot at the cockpit. Uh, you know, you see a lot of young people coming through with shows. Do you think they're having that same experience today where, where a play surprises them and moves them? Uh, or do you think something else is, is happening today? I, the reason I ask is that I, I, I don't hear a lot of that talk among young people. Um, and perhaps I'm asking the wrong ones, but, uh, it, it feels almost like that they're looking at theater as a, you know, they're, they have a checklist. And if the, checklist gets checked off then they like the play and if it doesn't get checked off they don't and and i wonder if that's uh, if the same kind of experience is being had today by young people as as was had uh, in yours and my uh, youth i think it is because i still find I'm able to identify with a lot of the emerging companies that come through the doors of the cockpit. So I probably get a distorted sample because the cockpit is for people that want to do theatre. They're, they're, they're crazy to do theatre. Mm. And most people have all had the, they've all got the white light, the mad white light in the eyes and they've, they've all had the, they've had the, they've had the moment. The, the, yeah. uh, so I think there's plenty. I think the big difference the major difference between uh, my gen- our generation and the new generation is that we used to we used to sit in our houses and think, God, there's a massive world out there, 
and in my bedroom is absolutely nothing <laughs> and I really want to get out in that big outside world right. and now people sit in their bedrooms with a huge world on the you know available uh, digitally mm-hmm. and the immediate surroundings outside their house may or may or may not be that interesting to them you know so so there's different there's they have young people have uh, more have a, a, a broader range of spaces to exist within and explore yeah. um, because they have online space as well as uh, real space. And that, I think, probably means they're spread a bit more thin. They've spread yeah. a bit more thinly. I mean, when I was 18, pubs and the pub theatre and pub rock, actually, in London, like bands in pubs, they, they were the big things. There weren't really that many nightclubs. There was one. Dingles, you know, that was open till three o'clock in the morning. But most of what you did was either parties, listening to records. Remember those? Those round things. Oh, yeah. you, go around, you, yeah. know. you know, you know the things we did. It was it was much more limited. And so there's um, there's a lot of entertainment, a lot of uh, interaction yeah. happening online as well as in the real world. I don't think it's replaced the interaction that happens in the real world, London is buzzing with people out doing stuff and going to theatre. I don't, I don't think, I don't, I think there are people, I think it still is happening from my, but then I'm probably getting all the people that uh, have had the, the theatre moment, the theatre, the theatre bell's gone off, you know, and and I I think, yeah, most people here, and there's a lot of young people work here and come through here. And like this New York, the, the New York Voices series that we've started, that we started to build around really Tally's Folly, which just looks at contemporary New York writers mm-hmm. uh, on the basis that we, you know, there was an old school of New York writers, Albie and whoever, you know, Lamford Wilson. And now there's a new school of New York writers, and a lot of them are, are not male, they're not white, they're, but there's a, you know, there's an awful lot of people, right? And, but the young people that come through that I've got working on that are absolutely fanatical about these writers, and they're just reading the plays. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's really surprised me. Frankie, who's working on this New York Voices series of readings, mm-hmm. is absolutely fanatical about... Um, finding fantastic plays and she really does find some good plays. Good. Can, so can, you, enthusiasm. can you tell me just a little bit more about uh, New York Voices? Uh, what's the scope of it and um, what do you want what do you want to accomplish with it? Um, it started off as a sort of marketing platform for Tally's Folly to be honest. I just thought well we'd better say why we're doing Tally's Folly and and then I, I got, and then I seriously got interested in um, the people that are working, the, the, the current wave of Pulitzer Prize winners, or the current the people that are up for Tonys and Pulitzers and what have you now, right. are completely different to the old. You know, we're not talking Sam Shepard or any of these. But, you know, so uh, and that was and that became very interesting to me because a lot of the plays are amazing. And what now that's going to happen is I'm not going to be able to remember the list of plays that we're doing or their authors. Um, mm. But there is a great play called The Clean House. Oh, yeah. With, with know, Sarah, Sarah Rubin. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So these, these, I mean, that's an astonishingly, that's an astonishingly theatrical play. Yeah. And, and so I'm really intrigued 
to see that. And it's a great, we're going to read that if we possibly can, you know. Um, and, and that will happen around uh, Tally's Folly and around the, you have a musical coming in in December, I believe. Is that well? We've got the musical about uh, Rita Hayworth coming in, or rather about Rita Hayworth as a manufactured sort of uh, entertainment icon, product. Yeah. Yeah, icon. And uh, yeah, we're going to run just a couple of readings a month all the way through to January. Right. Uh, and what I'm hoping is that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised how much interest there is. I, we've had a lot of coverage on it, as you know, Joe, because, you know, mm -hmm. and the, the people in the building are really excited about it. It's, 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 it's really taken off. So I'm thinking that if we get some of these plays and they turn out to be doable, that we might look at producing one next year or something. That's great. Um, do, do you think uh, this is uh, this will be my last question for you, um, Dave? Uh, uh, unless there's something else you want to talk about, do you knowing the 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 plays that you're you're curating this series, New York Voices, Tally's Folly is um, is by a, a, a seminal uh, New York uh, playwright, uh, one of the founding uh, playwrights of the off-off Broadway movement in the late 50s into the mid-60s, and then the, the house playwright at the legendary Circle Repertory Theater, which really was the, the core of the off-Broadway movement uh, um, into the 70s and 80s. Um, does Tally's Folly uh, fit to what um, the cockpit uh, does and wants to do, and if so, why do you why do you think it does? Um, it fits because it's a it's as you say it's a, an extraordinarily good example of a very well put together, well written play that that had that kind of. Um, enabled New York to acquire a reputation as a beacon of work that was quite often critical of America or quite or that critiqued America or that, or that um, examined America in a particular yeah. country. You know, New York was full of writers that weren't from New York, but they went to New York and then turned around and looked back at where, looked back at where they'd come from and wrote about that. Tennessee Williams. The, yeah, absolutely. So that's that's why because that's why it fits so well, is yeah. because it's precisely that really well worked, well considered piece of work that looks specifically at uh, at American specificity. You know, this is you know this is this time, this place, this time. These are these people. This is how they think. This is what they do. And because both of the people in in Tallis Follow are um, out of place a bit, you know, they're they're both out of place, and, and and so that just makes it relevant. It's not like a piece of down home naturalism, you know. Right. These, right. these are characters that are travelling through the play in search of something, and that's that kind of lifts it out of just being a little bit of old, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not exactly a um, a slice of life drama, no, no, no. and it's, no, no. it's at least. Uh, Lanford Wilson like of, of his plays and yeah. because of that I think so it fits because it's definitely because it is that it's what in, it's what in, it's what New York enabled enabled writers to do uh, was to do that kind of work just by being a place with a big population of theatre goers and 
and the and the and the you know it was a it was a a constellation, wasn't it? You had critics that were interested in being voluble star critics, and you had theatres that were turn, and you had musicals that was the and you had and you had big crowd of salaried educated people that were literary or what so it was a sort of golden literally golden theater moment um and new york was definitely a beacon of new writing at the same time as it was a beacon of sort of avant-garde performance so it wasn't just the playwriting it was also the performance and somehow to me though they, they kind of go together um and it's just interesting. So, it's, and the question is, well, what's going on now? And I realised that I didn't know who was writing in New York now. I don't know. I didn't know any. I didn't know about the Clinton I didn't know about Yell. You know, I didn't know about. I didn't know these people. So, um, it's been a it's been an opportunity for me to um, read some stuff, really. Yeah. And I've been really pleased that I did. There's a, there's a ton of it. Uh, it's the the work that's opening up right now here and in uh, London and in other places as well. Canada, um, Australia. There's just a, a wealth of material, and uh, at least at least until uh, mistrust gets a hold of it, uh, <laughs> a wealth of uh, uh, at least enough funding to make sure that those uh, those types of uh, um, opportunities continue to to remain for. For, for younger generations coming up with new ideas about how to do things, uh, which is which is great and, and what it should be. Dave, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I know you have 74 um, things on, on that you need to deal with right now uh, because you always do. <laughs> and uh, rather miraculously, you managed to do them all. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks. And uh, looking forward to being back at our our home uh, in London, which is the cockpit. Thank you for joining us. We can't wait to see you, Jerry. And the set is going to look a treat. I promise you that. I think the set's going to be a folly. Great. That's great. (laughs) Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Say hello to the group. And uh, we will be there in a few weeks. See you in October. Ciao for now. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Our production of Tally's Folly at the Cockpit in London will run from October 13th through the 29th. For tickets and information, visit us at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.